our guest this evening is David Robert Grimes, who is a physicist who started off his training in Ireland, but is now working at Oxford University. To begin our podcast, if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of background on how, what inspired you to become a scientist and how you ended up where you are now. Oh, that's a, that's, that's, that's a good question. I guess uh, my very first uh, foray into science was when I was about four years old and I thought my action figures were coming to life and I wanted to see if they were or not, so I poured an entire bag of flour onto the ground to see if they left little footprints. What I learned is that really annoys your mother, is the first thing, but uh, that my action figures were either very good at faking it or weren't coming to life. But how I got here, um, I did a degree in applied physics in Dublin City University um, I did a PhD there as well because, you know, when you can't decide what you're doing at the end of your undergraduate, probably familiar to some people, just keep going. And then I just said, right, that's it, I'm out of science, and then realized that everything else wasn't as much fun as science. So I ended up back in here, and I'm now doing a postdoc over in Oxford. That's the very short version. <laughs> we'll take the short version. But another interesting thing about you, and actually this is what we're going to focus our podcast on this evening, is your role in science advocacy. So generally, when you think of people fighting against bogus science, you've got the, the big names like Richard Darwin. Richard Darwin. This is going to turn He'd into love one that. Of you know, I, I should tell him. Yeah, He'd love probably. that. Probably. Yeah, yeah. uh, you have Richard Dawkins in the UK, or you have Bill Nye, the science guy over here. Mm-hmm. And for someone so young, how did you get into that particular role? Um, that's a good question. I, I think part of the reason I ended up in this role is because I'm very easily irritated. <laughs> and... Um, I mean, I, I have a lot of time for most journalists, almost all, and I remember reading papers years ago, just after I finished my PhD, and actually realizing for the first time just quite how bad science reporting actually could be. Uh, the big one I remember was, uh, some of your listeners might remember, in 2011 there was a big story all across the world about a new star sign that had been discovered. And this was reported in broadsheets across the world, including the one I, I used to read in, in Dublin, the Irish Times, and I, I occasionally write for now. And it was reported as a fact, new star sign discovered. And what frustrated me so much is the poor professor who had been misquoted in this story was pointing out that because of axial precession and, and the, the, way, the fact that the world tilts, that the star signs the Greeks saw, we'd be, we'd be looking at a totally different plane right now. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned star signs that actually have been well known. There's a lot of star signs that, or you know, constellations mm-hmm. that we we don't use in our, in our Zodiac 12. But this led to consternation. There was people, thre- the guy had to go into hiding. They were threatening his life. It was insane. But it was given the air of respectability by being reported uncritically in, in news media. And I think that was my, my bit of a catalyst for going, oh, for God's sakes. And I remember writing a long, rambling letter to the editor saying why this was wrong and it never getting published. And me kind of going, oh, well, so this has never been corrected. And realizing that actually if scientists don't get more involved in media... You, things won't get corrected. They will perpetuate in, in falsehoods for, forever and ever. So I think part of our training obliges us to correct each other. Maybe we should try to extend that to a general audience who are more than capable of going with the arguments. There's very smart people listening. They might not have the same background that we've had, but there's no reason for them to get dumbed-down science because they can obviously handle the full stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um and this is why I think this is effectively what inspired our role within Pint of Science. Um, so how did you end up specifically writing for, for anybody who doesn't know, the Irish Times and one of the biggest newspapers in the UK, The Guardian? Oh, that's uh, serendipity and, and blind luck. I 
I started blogging originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when you start writing as a scientist, you try to be as comprehensive as possible. You try to be, you try to cover everything, and you try to be as technically specific. But the first thing I realized is there's a difference in the words that scientists use and how they're perceived by the general public. A theory is a classic example. You know, you have the intelligent design people going, well, evolution is just a theory, playing on the ambiguity between the popular perception of theory and the actual scientific meaning of the word from theorem. And, and, and there's things I noticed, they were the first things that I noticed. I had to change my writing style to, because I had more people commenting on my blog, kind of going, okay, what about this? And I realized that being overly technical wasn't necessarily helpful. And then I had a chance meeting with um, an editor in the Irish Times, and I gave out to him, I think, about one of his stories they had once ran. And he said, well, why don't you send me in some of your stuff then? And I did, and they actually paid attention, surprisingly. And that's how it started. And The Guardian was a, a similar thing again. I just sent them a piece out of the blue and said, "Here, I write these things. Here's something. Would you like to have this? And that's how it works these days. I mean, I'm, I, I send them in a piece, and sometimes they take it, and sometimes they tell me to go away. So it's always <laughs> fun. Yeah. And so the, the things that you write about are not actually within your field, so how do you reconcile to people that you're writing on so many different um, areas that, you know... Well, that's a good question, and I, I, that's one of the criticisms that I'll get from someone who's unhappy with something I've written. He's not even an expert in X. But my argument is you don't have to be an expert in X. All you have to do is follow the scientific consensus and follow the evidence. I mean, the idea that you have to be an expert on, say, vaccination to have an opinion or have an understanding of vaccination would be obviously erroneous, and that is... This thing that people do. I mean, one of, the big, one of the big problems then is that there's an idea that you have to be an expert to follow a scientific argument. You do not. Everyone can do it. It's just critical thinking. What people need to is, the, is, is a guide to here's the main arguments, here's what scientists think, here's why they think that. I don't think that you, if we, if we were just to boil everything down to you have to be an expert in this, no one could science communicate and our general science discourse would be absolutely atrocious. Yep. So you have to balance it. Obviously, if I need to write something very, very technical, I go to someone who is an expert. And that is one of the things I will do straight off the bat. I will check that what I'm writing mm-hmm. represents the scientific consensus. Yep. Um, and that's part of the research you do as a writer. But then your job is to communicate that to the, the lay public. And if you do that right, everyone understands a bit better. And so I'm sure you will have seen the, the research, um, the Pew poll, uh, saying that the vast majority of Americans, I think it's something like 79%, really believe that scientists have done great things and that have been hugely beneficial to our health and technology and advances and so on. And yet when you look at an individual subject like GMOs, they have absolutely no faith in what scientists are saying in terms of GMOs being safe or you know, climate change being real and so on. So they say uh, that this is all a problem because the general public don't understand science. So how would you suggest to them that they try and close this gap? There's, I think there's a twofold problem here. I think for a scientist, it looks like it's an information gap, and I think that's what we all assume. I mm-hmm. certainly did when I started writing. But I think your bigger problem, what you've kind of touched on there, is that there is an ideological problem. So, for instance, I can tell someone, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very scientific, I always support science. Science gives you a kind of, uh, you know, a, an apparent objectivity. But then, if I'm very anti-GMO, I can then accuse you, because of my ideological bias of not representing the scientific consensus. You can weaponize it the wrong way. And I think a big problem I've noticed in these debates is it's ideological bias. Over Everyone says they're scientific, 
until they're confronted with something where the evidence base might conflict mm -hmm. with what they actually believe. And then you have people making exceptions. They'll tell you you're unscientific. The one I get all the time is that I'm a plant of uh, Monsanto or the, the, the big pharma movement or something like that. Or if I write a pro-nuclear piece, I get the you're a nuclear shill. You get these kind of arguments because actually they're not really an argument. They're an absence of an argument. Mm -hmm. And it's because you've ideologically challenged someone and you've shown them science that conflicts with their position and their knee-jerk reaction is to try and discredit you as quickly as possible. And it's unfortunate, but it happens in all fields, but in science it's particularly obvious because someone can go along with the scientific consensus till they hit their own blind spot. And yep. I, I do see that a lot in the kind of pieces I write, unfortunately. Yep. And you probably wouldn't mind so much if you actually had the financial backing of these people that they're accusing you of. <laughs> if, if, if I had a paycheck from every company I was supposed to get a paycheck from, I wouldn't be doing science. I'd be driving around in a Lexus or a Merc somewhere, you know, throwing money at the window. But unfortunately, that's not the reality of the situation. No one has ever asked me to write something for money, and I wouldn't if I were asked, because then your objectivity would be compromised, and that would be a problem. So, switching away from my questions... We actually have one from a former guest of ours, Mel Rogers, who did our Volcano podcast a while back. And she wanted to ask, how do you effectively communicate scientific uncertainty? So often the perception of the public when confronted with a scientist who's trying to convey this uncertainty um, is that they don't know what they're talking about or at worst they're deliberately hiding something. It's a real problem, and I think you have to wear two different hats. I, I mentioned a bit earlier on about the theory, theory, public versus scientific perception. Um, I think a classic example, and I did a piece back in December on the, on, the, uh, on the Ebola crisis. You see journalists questioning scientists going, so is there any chance this could spread in Europe or America? And the scientists trying to quantify the uncertainty, and not saying, well, absolutely none. They're saying, well, it's very unlikely. And then the journalists pushing them to say, but not impossible. And, of course, the scientist being a good scientist has to go, yeah. well, no, it's not impossible. And that is the gap that scientists fall into. What you kind of have to if I'm writing about climate change, for example, the scientific evidence for anthropogenic climate change is overwhelming. The, 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 the balance of evidence really stacks that way. But well, I might use the word incontrovertible in, in, in my public discourse where I mightn't use that in my scientific discourse because incontrovertible to the public means actually this is what all the evidence is behind. Scientists are sometimes too concerned with using the technical language we use with our colleagues to the public. And if you do that, there are people that will try to trip you up in it. If the evidence base is so strong, use the, the colloquial what the people on the street will use and what they will understand your terms to be. It took me a long time to learn that. And I sometimes I do write a piece and I occasionally get a scientist going, you should have used this word and quantified the uncertainty. But I know, yes, but I'd lose my audience doing that and leave them with the wrong message. So you have to be very careful. There's no, there's no shortcut to it, unfortunately. I wish there was. It's a great question, but uh, it's two different hats for two different jobs. So uh, a question from fellow David. Can reason persuade people or is it all about sound bites? That's a really good question. To a lot of people, reason can persuade them. In fact... I, my, this is my hope, and I have no evidence to back this up. When you read things online, online is a pretty good example because a lot of people comment on different things and you get this perception. It seems like a pitch battle. It seems like one side and the other side, and no middle ground. I firmly believe that the vast majority of people are in the undecided middle ground where they're not particularly committed to one view or the other. If you give them 
you know, accurate scientific information mm-hmm. and you, you don't bang them over the head with it, but you present it to them, I think they will go, okay, I'll believe that. You will never convince the extremists on any side of an argument. And that's not who you should be aiming to convince. You'll never convince an anti-vaccine nut. And in fact, this, this good scientific research shows the more you try to convince someone who's anti-vaccination, vaccination is good, the deeper they will retreat. That's a psychological quirk. It's very, very interesting. But it's the people in the middle that you want to always get on your side. So I think reason will prevail with the vast, silent majority in the middle. Mm-hmm. I do not think it will necessarily prevail at either extreme fringe. Yeah. So it's like a function that just cuts off at both ends. That's how I envision it. At least I really hope it's that way, otherwise I'm wasting a lot of time. Yeah, quite. Um, so speaking of extreme fringes, you seem to have a particular one in Ireland at the moment with <laughs> fluoridation of your water supply. Oh, Can you explain the story? Lo- lovely people, lovely people. Um, yes, okay, so like America, where we are at the moment, um, Ireland fluoridates its water. It has since 1965. It's not alone in doing that. In, in Spain, some regions fluoridate. In parts of the UK, they do as well. And in the rest of Europe, they add for it to, to foodstuffs or to milk and things like that, or salt and pepper. And there's a good reason for that. There is great scientific evidence that a, an optimal amount of fluoride, roughly one m, uh, milligram per litre, is really good for dental health with no big side effects for health. And it saves a lot more money than it costs. So as health interventions, that's rare. We have very few that save more than they cost. But since the 1950s, since it started in the, in the States, a whole hive of conspiracy theories have, have built up around it. If anyone's ever seen Dr. Strangelove, which is a fantastic movie, if you haven't seen it, go and see it. The whole war is launched by a guy who believes that fluoride is a, is a communist conspiracy. So it used to be a conspiracy of the hard right. And in the mid-70s, it kind of changed to the hard left. So it still kind of comes up every few years, but recently in Ireland it's been revived as a, as a popular movement, and they blame fluoride for everything, for depression, for cancer, for you know having a sore head in the morning after drinking. It's funny, they, <laughs> fluoride is blamed for basically everything. And I thought it was too cranky. When originally I kind of delved my toes in this debate, I ignored it for a long time because I thought these people are cranks. But then Sinn Féin, one of Ireland's uh, more notorious political parties, started championing the cause of these extremists and actually getting it serious airtime in political chambers and presenting it as a populist movement. And at that stage, I felt, right, I should write something presenting the scientific consensus on this matter. I should also point out that Ireland had a problem with this about 12 years ago and established an Irish expert board on fluoride to appease the people that were making these, you know, accusations more than a decade ago. And, of course, that board has found constantly that actually it's beneficial for health, it's not doing any harm and has been constantly ignored. There is a risk of appeasement of extremists but that's another discussion. Anyway, I, I, I waded into the debate in, in 2013 with an Irish Times piece um, and the hate mail I got for that was staggering. I had people writing to University of Oxford demanding I be fired I had people claiming I worked for Big Pharma. Somehow they were connecting Big Pharma to, to fluoride um, someone came up with a wonderful conspiracy theory because there's a group that do aluminium research in Oxford therefore I was funded by big aluminium who somehow make floor the, the logical contortions were amazing but it, it went, it's still ongoing unfortunately I mean I did a follow piece for the Guardian on anti-vaccination anti-fluoridation people they share a lot of common overlap 
in uh, their belief psychology, and that's really, really interesting. And you can see it in the passion that they display their beliefs, but the way that they will disregard or, or contort and twist scientific evidence. It, it is interesting. They, they have found that with vaccination, I know, I don't know what the fluoride does, are, that people who are better educated are more likely to oppose vaccination mm-hmm. because they think they know more. Yep. <laughs> it's, um, and I'd say if you looked at anti-fluoridation movements, you'd see something quite similar. Because yep. I know there is psychological literature that says the overlap between these anti-interventionist groups is very, very high. But it would be unscientific of me to state that they're definitely one and the same, but they definitely share a lot of common proponents. Certainly. The ones in Ireland definitely do, because they claim their next thing is, is vaccination. What do you think makes people sceptical of scientists? I suppose it depends on your background. I mean, we look at, for years we had religious figures that stood up there and told us this is this, or political figures that told us that. I think people associate scientists coming out and saying something to you as some kind of authority demanding you believe this. They don't see that science is actually quite you know, democratic. It's the evidence is here, look at the evidence and this will show us. I think there's an association with authority figures telling you and then you resisting the authority figure. And historically, I suppose, this is just me spitballing this. I'm not sure if it's true or not. Um, I think when people are, are scared of scientists, they're more scared of authority. Now, scientists, I don't really think, act with any more authority than the evidence allows them to. But there's an understandable worry in people that I don't want some man in a robe telling me what to do. And if they see scientists as men in lab coats or women in lab coats, you have that similar you know primal fear maybe kicking in yeah. possibly yeah and it probably doesn't help our cause that occasionally you have scientists in inverted commas like andrew wakefield who oh. started the whole vaccination scare in the yeah. first. but that that's the thing those people aren't acting with any kind of scientific evidence base science on its own doesn't have authority it's a method of inquiry science its real power is that it presents you the evidence and the evidence guides you to the conclusion doing it the opposite way around you might as well just be a priest of some religion and tell people what to believe yep. science of course will update its beliefs it will constantly refresh depending on the evidence base you know even when you think you're being perfectly logical we are often not and that's the nice thing about science being self-correcting is that individual scientists opinion doesn't actually really matter what Mm -hmm. matters is that the bulk of evidence points in one direction and you follow that along and you test out whether that's true or false and it's a testing that matters and i think that's beautiful about science reality doesn't care a damn what you actually believe reality is independent of that and i think that's its real power and if people saw that how fair-handed it was i think they'd be less inclined to be skeptical or apprehensive of it for sure so a complete aside I saw a, a very interesting video clip of you today on, is it BBC World? That could have been anyone's ass. Been. <laughs> well, this question will hopefully help focus your thoughts a little bit. And it's, uh, what can we learn with a math model of guitar? <laughs> oh, that clip. Okay. That clip, <laughs> yes. um, I, I don't think I always do. I'm, maybe I'm weird in this. I, I don't know scientists, what do I want to know? It's kind of selfish. I kind of go, what am I curious about? Okay, let's poke at that. As, as I'm as keen, I was a session musician in a previous life, and I'm a keen guitarist still. And I remember um, one of the techniques that guitarists use a lot is bending. You bend the strings up. It, it gives a lovely singing quality. It's beautiful sound. And I remember doing this and kind of going, I wonder what physics are happening here. It's really cool physics that are going on. And it just it, it started as a hobby project, and I showed it to someone, and they kind of went, you should probably publish that. And then um, it was published, and then... University of Oxford thought that was that was great crack altogether, and they did a press release for us. And then I had all these um, different news stations calling me, going, 
have you discovered the secret of how guitars sound good? I'm like, no, but I've discovered if you add vibrato or bending or like what's actually happening from a physical perspective. I mean, it's stuff that guitarists have intuitively known for years. I just wanted to put numbers on it. The only thing I've learned from it is what kind of strings I should buy to get different sounds. Because I found the Young's modular through strings affects a lot of different things, which you kind of intuitively knew already. But you can now do it by looking at the back of a string, working out its mineral competition or composition, going back. And you could, in theory, it's actually cheaper just to buy the strings and play with them. But it's nice to know that you have to buy the strings, just play with them, <laughs> that is cheaper. I had fun. That's, uh, that was my and motivation. That's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Is Guitar Hero a good model of the music world? Okay, my, my, my initial impulse is to say, God, no, 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 <laughs> kill it with fire. But, you know, if nothing else, if it's exposing people to good music, that's great. But um, most guitars have more than four to eight buttons. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Although you could probably design a guitar, well, I don't know why you would, but you know, I, I, I have heard people like getting into new music from Guitar Hero, and if it's social bonding, they're having a bit of a laugh. I don't think it's doing any harm, but I wouldn't say it's a good model. <laughs> What's the difference between countries with regards to respect for scientists, at least in your experience? You know, overall, I think most people, like I said earlier on, science has, for better or worse, been associated with a kind of authority. And I think most people say can see the benefits that science has given us our our longer lived lives, all our technology, all the cool stuff that we take for granted is a result of, of, of strenuous exertion in, in, in research in the past. I think most countries respect science, with the exception, again, if it conflicts with their ideological groups, mm-hmm. which is kind of so counterintuitive. What people should do is reevaluate their position, not try to reevaluate all the evidence, you know, or yep. just flip it around. But I have to say, though, even as a scientist, it's really hard not to read something, be instantly outraged, jump to all sorts of conclusions, and then when you finally calm down, you realise, no, it's fine, that's a load of rubbish. And so you can understand how the public also perceives it that way because they don't necessarily have that secondary response to say, OK, calm down, think about this rationally, and they just get the, the kind of the panicked aspect of it. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think, I mean, I, I live with, uh, my girlfriend is a belief psychologist. And I've learned even in my own thought process that she'll often ask me questions and I realize, oh, yeah, you, that's the human condition. And I'm not sure how, we, I mean, we can try to overcome that. I'm kind of not very optimistic about how much we will. Yeah. So for a member of the public who does not have a scientific background, what would be your take-home message when they see any of these stories? Ask questions. And I think that goes for members of the public with a scientific background. Remember that you know, if you see something reported, you're getting it already second-hand. Um, one, I mean, the classic one you see is a study has just shown that this, like an individual study never proves anything. Mm-hmm. What you need to see is a bulk of evidence pointing a certain direction. It's a weird thing to say, but I think that the advent of Wikipedia has been absolutely amazing. Because if you're not sure about something, there's usually a really well-referenced, well-cited argument in it. And if it's contentious, it usually is written on top yeah. there. So there is this nice level of self-correction, but always check things and remember be careful of your sources because it's easy to say scientists check that look at papers most people don't have paper access there is this two-tier system with scientific research that hopefully is with the open access movement is getting more and more open the information is there there are reputable sources that do very good explainers and sources and just to assess one source if you're reading an anti-gmo argument from a notoriously anti-gmo website bear in mind that they're they're viewpoint will probably be skewed and it goes both ways of course Mm so it's just to check your sources and ask questions marvelous and on that note i would like to say thank you very much so for coming out to speak to us this evening thanks for having me
And finally, thank you so much as ever to the New World Brewery for hosting us and tolerating us. used to work in the ultraviolet tubes years ago I had the model but I had to I was on my own I was my own research group so I had to also validate the model and working quite happily on the tube until health and safety came in to run an inspection and I was supposed to be wearing a full protective suit but when you're working with these ultraviolet tubes you get really really warm so I had a bunch of middle-aged ladies looking at me horrified as I was in my boxers with a pair of aviators on and I had to kind of go this is fine this is for science just been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in I can say fuck, 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 fuckity fuck.